welcome Nexus Church family online to our series in the book of Mark that's self-titled. In the series, we're exploring the life of Jesus and applying it to our personal lives. If you have more questions or if you would like to get a hold of us, go to nexuschurchmn.com. You can find all the information on there as well as emailing nexuschurchmn at gmail.com. You can check us out on Facebook. But we'd love to connect with you and help you to connect to Jesus. Enjoy today's message. Welcome back, Nexus Church family, to our final week in our chapter 9 of the book of Mark. It's taken us a month to get through it, but there was absolutely chocked full of, of amazing depth to what Mark was portraying in the life of Jesus. Now this week kind of comes to an interesting end, really. Uh, I named it the trifecta because truly there is three separate thoughts that are going on in this passage today. And so we're going to kind of break it down section by section, and we're going to be investigating how Jesus viewed those who kind of came from maybe a different background, but still within the scope of Christianity. And then we're going to quickly turn the page and, and see how Jesus welcomed a child and how maybe the disciples weren't quite on the same page. And then lastly, uh, Jesus really kind of ends this chapter with a call to, to asking oneself, where am I at in sin, in how I respond to God, how I live for God. And so let's just dig right in into Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 44. And we read, John said to him, now this is one of Jesus' disciples, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward." But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. The unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Like I said, there are really three differing thoughts going on here that we're going to tackle today. And so uh, let's get right to it. I'll reread just that first section for us to kind of re-engage in that thought. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now, 
in that little tiny section right there, we're not 100% sure who this person was. However, Jesus' response alludes to the fact that this person had to be somewhat associated with him. Now, some commentators, that particular of Clark, said that this has to either be somebody who was connected with him when he sent out the 70 to do the great works that we read of in, in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, or this could be potentially one of John the Baptist's disciples who followed him around, but when Jesus came onto the scene, soon switched and started associated with Jesus. And so, whatever the case may be, the point that I believe Jesus was trying to make in this passage as we go on is that Christians from different backgrounds are valuable, that we have this kind of freedom to have differing views, differing perspectives on things, like we are humans, and how we take things may kind of go down a little bit different direction. So let's continue in and read this for just a brief moment. Don't stop him, Jesus said, because there was no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon after speak evil of me. So if somebody's doing something good in Jesus' name, he's not going to turn around and then, in light of that, bash the name of Christ. Like, he's not going to elevate and say, I am doing this for the glory of God, and then turn around and slander Jesus. And then we close, for whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water or drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. So Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, yeah, they're not one of you, the 12 chosen ones that I selected, but that doesn't mean that they're not for us. That doesn't mean that I haven't given them authority to do good works. This is somebody who represents me who just doesn't happen to be one of your lucky 12. Paul says something similar to this in Philippians, the book of Philippians chapter 1. And I'd just like to briefly read this to you because he had people who were against him, but yet still represented Christ, right? I have a hard time even coming up with a good example of how this could be, but these people were truly followers of Jesus, called on the name of Jesus for salvation, but yet they were against him. And listen to how much they were against him. Philippians 1 verse 15 says, To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These, that is, those who are of goodwill, preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others, that is, those who are in rival, those who are seemingly somehow in competition trying to prove that they are better than Paul, <laughs> they do it out of selfish ambition, not sincere, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. So they're doing this out of spite, out of envy, out of trying to prove themselves as greater than Paul. In a sense, they were kind of adding to his torture in prison. They were trying to demean him, trying to almost take advantage of his time in prison so that they could elevate themselves and get more followers to follow them. It was almost a competition. I guess we kind of see this in a 
in the church world today where we get into a group and we talk about our, our churches and how awesome our pastor is or how awesome our, our congregation is or all the great things that we do for our community. And we just brag about it and we say how much we gave to missions or, you know, we, we get into these, these groups and gatherings and we tout our stuff. And we kind of look at others and say, oh, they're not doing good because, well, they're not doing it right. They're not doing it like us. And, and Paul is saying, yeah, let them do it. Let them do it. Right? I mean, he could have been crushed. He could have been demoralized. And he could have been like, man, my ministry is being torn apart right now. I'm in prison and I can't get out and do the work that God has called me to. But yet he looks at these people who are taking advantage of him in his imprisonment. And listen to what he says. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Wow. All Paul cared about was that Jesus was being proclaimed and people were getting saved. I think that's important for us. You see, we, we look at others and we compare and we contrast and, and we look at, you know, maybe other churches, maybe it's other Christians and maybe their lack of self-control and where they're at in life and how things are just a mess for them or, I mean, the list just can go on and on. We look at other denominations and point at them and say, look at how horrible that denomination has ended up or, or that leader of that mega church and man, look at that moral failure and oh, just... There's, there's so much to point at in our culture because it's, it's always in our face and we continue to hear it over and over. And Paul is saying, stop that. I, as long as Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice, whether it's out of good motives or bad motives. And I think we need to take, take stock on that and ask ourselves, am I trying to be God's police? Am I trying to make sure that everybody follows things the way I think they should? Because let's be real, you're not Jesus. You don't know everything. You don't, you don't have the handle on this Bible that we carry around and proclaim the Word of God from. We don't understand everything 100%. Nobody does. Not a single commentator or pastor who has ever lived, only God can fully understand his word. And that's why we continue to press in and try to understand it more and more because there's so much to it and so much depth. And God continues to reveal himself through it as we continue to, to press in. So we are not God's police. God can take care of heresy. I mean, if, if he reveals it to us and he calls us to approach it, yes, that's one thing. But too many people are just out there trying to, to be that heresy police for God himself. And he hasn't called us to that. He's called us to unity. That's what he's pointing to here. And, of course, the famous John 17 where, where Jesus is just pouring out his heart that, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. That's pretty darn tight. That's really connected. That's what God's heart is for you and for me. We don't point fingers. And we don't nitpick everything. We preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. Jesus came to save us from our sins. We don't deserve a single bit of this life we've been given. Right? He's given it to us. We need to get back to that. And that's all 
Paul cared about in the light of all this persecution. That's what Jesus is saying here. You know what? John, I know, he's not one of your special ones. He's not in your camp, your denomination, your church, your, your theological beliefs, your political beliefs, whatever it is. I know he's not. I know that guy's not. But he's doing it in my name. And he's doing it for my glory. Leave him alone. You worry about what matters. Preach the gospel. You do a work. So anytime you start pointing fingers and turning aside and looking at others, you're, you're, you're turning your back on where you're supposed to be going, where God has called you. You're focusing on that when God has called you forward and onward. Well, the text continues to go on. Maybe that was for you today, maybe not. Like I said, this is the great trifecta. There's three thoughts all in one statement today or in one passage. And so we come upon this statement in verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, this is an interesting statement because alone, pretty self-explanatory. But within three little sections that we are covering in Mark, this comes up every single time. And I alluded to it in, in the previous week's message about how Jesus welcomes the children. And, and how in that day and age, uh, they were kind of looked at as a commodity, as to be seen but not heard. They were kind of like a, a possession that somebody had. that You had to kind of just like put up with almost. And so we read in that passage, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but welcomes him who sent me. That's verse 37 of chapter 9. And so then we come to this statement, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me fall away, it would be better if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into a fire. And then we read in the very next section, that is in chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, we read that people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, right? To bless them, to, to like almost send his favor upon their lives and, and allow his, his blessing to, to call them to greatness, if you will. And then the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, like he was ticked off, right? With a holy tick not, ticked off, not an uh, evil, angry one. He was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And after taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. You see, I think what we're seeing in these three passages in particular coming from today, Jesus considered the least to be valuable. And he's, he's looking at his disciples and he's saying, okay, those who are not against us are for us. Stop nitpicking, stop focusing on them. And then he turns to them and says, do not hinder a little one, a least of these, one that's considered 
just a commodity. Don't stop them from coming to me. Welcome them. See them. Encourage them. Don't, don't stop them. Disciple them. Pour into them. See them. Empower them. And then he comes to chapter 10, verse 13, and then he says, not only should we welcome them, not only should we develop them and encourage them, empower them, but they are of value to us. That's, that's like you, you can be benefited from this next generation. And oh my goodness, how many times we hear people demeaning other generations and saying this generation is just lazy or this generation is just pie in the sky or this generation has had everything given to them we've heard that for years you know we 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 even call newer generations that are coming up the snowflake generation maybe you haven't heard that term but it's been one that i have heard many times and it's derogatory it's inflammatory. It's trying to, to cause division and dissension and looking down upon. And Jesus comes along and says, no, stop hindering them. Welcome them. Empower them. In fact, not only empower them, but you can benefit from them. Friends, every generation has something of value. Now, whether you're young and you look up at the older generation and say, man, I can't wait for their time to be done because, man, they're backwards. Man, they don't understand what I know. It goes both ways, right? I've heard it from both ends of the spectrum, and I'm stuck here in the middle, kind of somewhere in la-la land, right? I hear it from both sides. When you're in the middle, you call the older generation sometimes lazy or whatever, and then you look at the younger generation, you say the same thing, and I don't think I'm any better than anybody else, right? Like, it, it's all the same. Every generation has experienced things that other generations never will. And there's a benefit to it. There's something that every generation can add to the body of Christ. It is valuable. Don't hinder them. Don't hinder the older generation. Don't hinder the younger generation and all those in between. We all have something to, va to add value to. And I encourage you, if you're somebody of the older generation, seek out those who are younger. Pour into them. And not just expect that you're the one who has to give, but come with open arms and open hearts and open minds and say, what can I learn from you? Man, there's so much beauty in that. That is what the church of Christ is all about. We're all here to learn and to help one another value each other, invest. It's for our benefit, for the health. And ultimately, it's for the strength of the body of Christ, the church. Well, lastly, Jesus addressed now those who aren't necessarily with our camp, that we don't necessarily agree with 100%. We're to welcome them. We're to cherish them and that they're valuable to the kingdom. We're also supposed to appreciate and enjoy multiple generations and, and grow from them and be challenged and pour into them. And then lastly, Jesus gives us this kind of word of caution, right? He goes in from a word of caution, don't hinder them, welcome them, 
to now be careful. Be careful of sin. We know from other parts of the Bible that the enemy is always looking, always trying to find weak spots to get in. And so Jesus says, if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown to hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown to hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but salt should lose its flavor. How can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace one with one another. And so, of course, this whole concept of don't let sin derail you. <laughs> if, if your hand is causing you to get derailed, cut it off. If your foot is causing you to get derailed, cut it off. If your eye is taking you off, the path that God has for you, gouge it out. Do whatever you have to to be right with God. Now, of course, I want to begin by stating that this is not Jesus literally telling you to maim yourself, right? He, he's really using a hyperbole. He's using exaggeration for a purpose. As Lane said, this was not to demand for a physical self of mutilation, but in the strongest manner possible, Jesus speaks to the costliest sacrifices, right? Whatever it takes. Now, this goes back to just a, a chapter to eight, chapter, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way or sacrifice yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Get rid of those burdens. Take them up and Throw them off to the side and follow me. And if you try to hang on to your life, those, those sins, those things that hold you down, that derail you, that get you off my, my path for you, you're going to lose it. Ultimately, you're, you're going to fall away and end up in that eternal hell that he talks about. But if you give up your life for my sake... And for the sake of the good news, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to give us access to the Father for all of eternity. If you've done that, you will be safe. We're going to make every effort to make ourselves what Paul calls in Romans 12, a living sacrifice. Every moment of our day, we're giving of ourselves to Jesus. You see, if only it was easy as asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins, right? We talk about this in the church world. If you've been in the church world for long enough, or maybe this is your first time, it, this is how we go about welcoming ourselves into God's presence. We need to ask for forgiveness of our sins. We've all messed up. The Bible's very clear about that, and the, the result of that, the wage, what we've earned for our messing up is eternal separation from God for all of eternity, we cannot be in God's presence because God is a holy God. We read that throughout Scripture. He's a perfect God who cannot be in the presence of evil. One evil thing we do has stained us. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and offered his life on the cross after being beaten and bruised and just ridiculed. He died on the cross for you, for me, for all of humanity. 
that if we accept and believe that he did that for me to make me cleansed like he was in a perfect life on earth, then we receive his forgiveness and now we are clean, at least spiritually, in the eyes of God. Now, we still sin and make mistakes physically, but in that spiritual connection to the Father, we are now cleansed, perfectly whole. Right? And, and so when we walk into this relationship, we still have this, this sin in our life physically. And that's what Paul's referring to here. He's saying, you are eternally taken care of, right? He establishes that in other parts of Romans. Very clear. You ask for forgiveness of sins, you will be saved, you will be in the presence of the Father. However, you need to every day offer your life, your physical life as a sacrifice because you're going to constantly face sin, the, the urge or the, the need or desire, whatever you want to call it, to, to do wrong every day. And if we allow that to go unchecked, that will affect our spiritual being. And it will affect our connection to the Father. That's, that's just part of this process, right? Like, if we turn our back on God and say, I don't care about living for you. I don't want to be a living sacrifice and walk away. He will deny you. He will say, I never knew you. You claim to know me. You asked me to forgive you of your sins, but it didn't matter to you. And so that's why Jesus says, be careful. You're my follower. He's talking to his disciples who lived with him. We're with him for three years. And he's looking at him and says, you have to be careful. Because if your hand causes you to sin, it will affect your relationship with the Father. And it could turn you away when you meet him face to face. And you want to enter into his presence. Offer yourself. As a living sacrifice, give yourself to the kingdom of God. And then he ends this section, and maybe you're as confused as I was when I first read it. And it says, for everyone will be salted with fire. What in the world does that mean? Salted with fire. Now this refers back to, you could write this down and look at it for yourself. Leviticus 2.13 in Ezekiel 43.24, Leviticus 2.13, in Ezekiel 43.24, where God establishes that those who give a sacrifice to him, now this is the Old Testament before Jesus, and the way that they made themselves right with God in the Old Testament was to offer animal sacrifices as a way to forgive them of their sins. And so that's how they did it, and they continually offered sacrifices for every time they sinned, over and over and there was multiple different kinds of sacrifices. The point is, is God established in the Old Testament that in order for him to receive that sacrifice, one had to add salt to it. And so Jesus is going back to what these disciples very well knew. And he said, you must have salt in your life. Now this kind of goes back to that Romans 12 thought of that living sacrifice. Right? Because if, as he goes on and says, if salt loses its flavor, if it's no longer salty flavor, that what we consider salty and that, whew, that was good. If, that, if it gets taken out and all it is is just a little morsel of seasoning that's no longer flavorful, it's worthless. And you can't add it back in. 
And so Jesus is really saying, you have to give yourself. Continually, every day, give yourself. When you give yourself, when you follow my ways, when you do as I say, you add that flavor. That is the salt that I'm looking for, your life, your heart, your willingness to be obedient. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I long for. That's what I require for you to be in the kingdom. That's what Jesus was calling his disciples to. That's what he's calling us to. Salt is good. (laughs) It's always good, right? Amen. (laughs) But if the salt loses its flavor, how can you season it? It's done. If you lose that daily sacrifice, that giving of yourself, you lost it. Now, we're going to go through ups and downs, right? Jesus isn't going to be like, bam, you messed it up. You went three days in a row without giving any thought to me. You're, you're a goner, right? You, we see it in the Old Testament. God continued to reach down. He pursued those people over and over, even though they constantly stuck their nose up at them and walked away. But eventually, there will be a time where you will meet the Savior face to face. Israel, they had to reckon themselves to God. And eventually, they were sent into slavery again, into captivity. Where they had to understand that God is real. And that when he says, don't lose your saltiness, he means it. He means it. So may I ask you today, what's holding you back from Jesus? What's, what's keeping you from dedicating yourself to him? Is it a distraction? Is it a sin? Is it a person? You don't want to give up something? You know it's going to cost you something, and man, I'm not up for that today. I understand. It's hard to give your life. It really is. But listen to what Titus says in chapter 3. This is a very encouraging but challenging and interesting passage if you're not willing to give your life. For we too were once foolish. That's every single person listening today. We either once were or we currently are. We're foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another, right? We're all at that. Every single human being is flawed. We're not as the humanists think, as inside everybody's good. Yeah, we have some good because we have God's imprint on our soul, but ultimately we have sin. In our lives. And we turn our back to God. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. Right? We didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. I sure didn't do anything to deserve what Jesus did on the cross, making available for us forgiveness of sin to be in his presence forever. But according to his mercy, through the washing and regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us, 
abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Jesus gave us what we didn't deserve. Not only did He give us that hope and that assurance of eternity with Him forever, He gave us the power of His Holy Spirit to live for Him today. And I think that's the catch that I want to really highlight for you. You see, God just doesn't save you and then expect you to have to do everything He calls you to in the Bible. No, He gives you the power of the Holy Spirit to empower you to do that good work. He fills you. He empowers you. And He gives you hope for eternal life. But notice what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3. This goes back to what I was referring to with the Israelites in the Old Testament where God continued to reach down His hand and continue to call out to them and they turned their back. Listen to this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with, it, with that generation, said they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore, swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Right? This is going back to all the amazing things. If you remember Exodus and how Moses led them out of slavery and all the miracles God did. It wasn't Moses' work. It was 100% God's work. Moses was just a spokesman that was obedient. Well, mostly obedient. He did what God asked him to eventually. And God did all those miracles. He performed amazing miracles over and over. At the, at the Red Sea, they crossed, and the enemies were just annihilated. He provided manna in the wilderness. He provided water in the wilderness. He provided meat in the wilderness through the quail. Over and over, God provided for them, and they got to the promised land, and they rejected his gift. Jesus is now that gift. And God is saying, don't be like your ancestors and reject this gift that's been given to you through Jesus Christ. The Hebrew writer says, watch out, brothers and sisters, that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you shall harden, be hardened by sin's deception. For I would become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end of the reality that we had at the start. As it is today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. God continued to reach out. Continued to reach out. And called his people, and they denied him. They hardened their hearts. You see, whether you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that is, I have accepted the fact that I can't be in God's presence for all of eternity when I die, and I believe that Jesus is the way so that I can be there in God's presence. 
that that's making him your savior but you also need to make him your lord some of you you need to make him your savior you need to ask jesus to forgive you of your sins and believe that he died on the cross so you can be in god's presence but then there's the next step you need to make him lord what is a lord ruler ruler of your life, when you read God's word and you hear what he has for you, you need to be obedient to him. Follow him. Receive his words and his power of the Holy Spirit to live them out. It's teachable heart and an obedient spirit. Live it out. And so God is reaching out to you today. Don't harden your heart. God's love. So I encourage you to spend some time right now. For some of you, that means you need to get down and be humble before God and say, I've sinned. I've made mistakes. I need your forgiveness. Save me. Be my Savior. And then for still others of you, including those of you who need to do that, you need to then make that statement, that proclamation, you are my Lord. I give you my life. Every day I'm going to be a living sacrifice. I'm going to wake up and admit I am going to be faced with challenges. It will cause me to be derailed and go down a path of sin. God, I need your strength. Empower me with your Holy Spirit because If you ask me to do anything, you promise to give me your Holy Spirit to do it. And so ask that. Ask God to give you the strength to live according to what he calls you to, whether it's in the Bible or in the time of praying or when somebody approaches you and says, hey, uh, God's way is to live this way, and you're not. Would you consider making yourself right with God? Whatever it is, however it comes, make Jesus your Savior. Make Jesus your Lord. Father, I pray for every person listening. Father, for some people, they need to make Jesus their Savior and Lord. I pray that you would lead them to that point, Father, whether they need to contact um, a church or somebody they know that, who is a Christian. Father, they need to connect with somebody who will lead them down a path of becoming saved and making Jesus their Lord. But Father, I believe that there's others listening, Father, who have made Jesus their Savior, but they're struggling with making Jesus their Lord. I pray that you would enter into their spirit right now and remind them, Father, that everything you ask of them, you give them your Holy Spirit to do it. May they be encouraged once again to step out, to get back on the tracks that you set before them to live for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us, Nexus Church family online, and we'll see you again real soon.